0: Arthur Thistlewood was a striking looking man, standing at about 5 feet 10, which was fairly tall for his time, with sunken eyes and a prominent jaw that was lined on both sides with thick sideburns. Those sunken eyes were fixed firmly on the ground on the afternoon of Wednesday the 23rd of February 1820, as he tried to look inconspicuous among the people going about their business near Edgware Road in North London. Turning onto Cato Street, he took a last look around him to make sure he wasn't being watched and entered a small building where he proceeded up to the loft. When he left that building that night, it wouldn't be in the leisurely manner he had entered it in, and those sunken eyes would be darting around the street in search of an escape route. He had been watched that afternoon, very closely, by government authorities. They had sat and watched as Thistlewood and his companions entered that small building on Cato Street, one by one, and they had caught them off guard that night. In the struggle that followed, Thistlewood killed one of the government men and managed to escape the scene but he'd be captured the following day and destined for the gallows with his friends. But what were Thistlewood and his gang up to that afternoon? Why were they under the close watch of the authorities? Well simply put it's because they were revolutionaries. They planned to murder the prime minister And his entire cabinet that very night. The plan was audacious and it could have worked if they hadn't recruited one man too many. Among the plotters was a government agent who had been relaying the plan back to his masters all along. Hello and welcome to the Ministry of History podcast, a podcast that aims to take a look at some of history's lesser known characters and stories. Today is a bonus episode and we're going to be discussing the Cato Street Conspiracy. This is just something I decided to record quickly because I realised that the 201st anniversary of the Cato Street Conspiracy is fast approaching. It's today, in fact. So I decided I wouldn't be doing my job properly if I didn't record a special episode just for the occasion. The Cato Street Conspiracy was a plot to murder the Prime Minister, Lord Liverpool, and his entire cabinet, which included the hero of the Battle of Waterloo, the Duke of Wellington. If you're wondering why you never heard of the time that the Duke of Wellington was assassinated, then fear not, you don't just have a huge gap in your historical knowledge. The Cato Street plot was of course foiled before it really kicked in. Even so, I think it's an interesting story because it says much about the state that Britain was in in 1820, just five years after one of its finest hours, victory over Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo. Britain in 1820, was a country on the verge of revolution and i'll be setting the scene for you to begin with today but firstly just the usual pointers you might know a bit about the cato street conspiracy if you've already read about it on the blog and i encourage you to do so it's the ministry of history on google and it's one of the top results what i also need to ask you to do is leave a review for the podcast if you have a spare moment Just leave a review, a good review, preferably, and it really would help the podcast to grow. I also might be a bit cheeky and point you towards my donation page on the Buy Me A Coffee website. I don't have delusions of becoming fabulously wealthy by doing this blog and podcast, but there are costs, equipment costs and overheads. And like anyone else, I need to pay for those costs and make this little project of mine sustainable in the long term. Follow the Buy Me A Coffee link in the description of this podcast, maybe after you've left a good review, and you could donate whatever you like. It can be as big or as small of a donation as you feel like. Any donation at all really would be hugely appreciated. Finally, don't forget to follow me on Twitter, it's at Ministry History, all one word, no of in the middle. You'll be the first to know about new blogs and new podcasts and all the rest of it. If you don't have Twitter, then good for you, stay off Twitter. But don't forget to check the website for the latest updates. Anyway, enough of all of that, and let's go back to Britain in 1820. A country, like I just said that really was on the verge of revolution. Victory at the Battle of Waterloo should have heralded a new era of peace and prosperity for Britain. But it didn't turn out that way. Economic and political tensions remained prominent. The economy spiralled into recession, providing fertile ground for revolutionary sentiment. You have to remember, it's only 30 years since the French Revolution, only 40 years since the American Revolution, and although Britain had officially opposed both of those events, there was still enough rebellious fervour in the air to make a British Revolution a possibility. In 1819, a demonstration for political rights at St Peter's Field in Manchester had been violently crushed by the army, an event that was ironically christened as the Peterloo Massacre and led to a widespread sense among the common people that the British system and establishment, which so many normal British people had fought to preserve during the Napoleonic Wars, was not on their side. To add to all of this, in 1820, George IV became king, and he was a desperately unpopular monarch. Enter Arthur Thistlewood. The illegitimate son of a successful Lincolnshire farmer, born in 1774, Thistlewood had followed a curious route from rural nobody to devoted revolutionary. Having left his unsatisfying job as a land surveyor, he briefly joined the army, but he was radicalised by a trip to the United States in 1794. He returned to England with a burning admiration for the American Revolution, and a sense that it was his duty, not just his ambition, to overthrow the British government. After unsuccessfully trying his hand at managing a farm, He was heavily involved in a plot in December 1816 to seize the Bank of England and the Tower of London. When that plot was foiled, he tried to escape to the United States with his wife, Susan Wilkinson, and their daughter. Incidentally, by the way, this was his second wife. His first wife, a woman named James Worsley, had unfortunately died during childbirth in 1797. Anyway, Thistlewood was trying to board a ship with his second wife but he was arrested and tried for treason. He caught a lucky break however when his defence counsel was able to show that the main witness against him had a long criminal history himself and was therefore unreliable. Acquitted of treason Thistlewood was a free man but he was under constant surveillance. Would Arthur Thistlewood take advantage of that good fortune and retire to a more quiet life? Not a chance. Thistlewood was absolutely committed to his cause, although he didn't actually seem so sure what his cause was, aside of course from the violent overthrow of the government. Acquaintances of his in radical circles, such as Henry Orator Hunt, who had been instrumental in the St Peter's Field gathering in 1819 had a clearer idea of what they wanted to achieve. Political representation, basic rights, to be achieved as peacefully as possible. In contrast, Thistlewood would just speak openly of overthrowing the government, but he seemed unsure of what his plan for after that would be. But that wasn't really his concern. And he was in good company in his revolutionary sentiment. He was involved at the St Peter's Field Gathering in August 1819, in which Henry Hunt had tried to speak before the army blundered their way through the crowd, and he organised a hero's welcome for Hunt in London soon after that. But despite his outward respect for Henry Hunt, the events of Peterloo only seemed to have made Thistlewood more sure than ever that the idea of respectable protest was redundant. As far as he was concerned, violence was the only way to achieve change. By the end of 1819, Thistlewood had organised a group of like-minded companions. There was Tom Brunt, a London shoemaker, Richard Tidd, another shoemaker, James Ings, who was a butcher, and William Davidson, a mixed-race illegitimate son of the former Attorney General of Jamaica. In an atmosphere that was further poisoned by the Prime Minister, Robert Jenkinson, Lord Liverpool, and his oppressive measures in the wake of the Peterloo Massacre, the gang forged a brutal plan that involved murdering the Prime Minister and his entire cabinet, including the famous Duke of Wellington, the next time they were all gathered together. They would then parade the severed heads of the Prime Minister and his cabinet for all of London to see, and establish a council to rule the country. We hear a lot about online echo chambers these days, and it seems that the same phenomenon existed in the early 19th century, because... The fact that the gang all moved in such radical circles in the same echo chambers seems to have counted against them. They were all genuinely convinced that the British people would just spontaneously rise up and support the coup. The whole thing was outlandish and they hadn't really properly thought it through. And yet, it wasn't impossible that the first part of the plan, i.e. the murders, could actually be pulled off. But in order to pull it off they needed more bodies, more men, and in bringing more men in they left themselves open to infiltration. George Edwards, a government agent who had been watching Thistlewood and his group, worked his way into their good graces and was eventually made privy to the plan. Unbeknownst to the gang, their plot was already doomed. On Tuesday, the 22nd of February, 1820, an alert member of the group spotted a small announcement in one of the London newspapers. The announcement described how the Prime Minister and his cabinet were due to dine at Lord Harrowby's house in Grosvenor Square, less than a 20-minute walk from the gang's base in Cato Street, the following evening. The plot was set in motion, and the gang agreed to gather at their base the following afternoon. Of course, George Edwards told the authorities about all of this straight away, and the building was put under surveillance. During the following afternoon, the gang, which by now numbered nearly 30 men, arrived one by one at Cato Street. Just after seven o'clock that evening, the authorities were satisfied that the main culprits were in the building and they made their way across the street. Thistlewood and his men were gathered in the loft and they weren't expecting any interference at all. So they were completely taken off guard when the door was sprung open and the authorities started streaming in. Thistlewood himself used his sabre to kill a government man named the Richard Smithers, and he managed to escape in the ensuing struggle. A few of his comrades managed to escape, and each ran for their lives in separate directions. The rest of the gang were forced to halt their resistance as more and more authorities surrounded the building. There were two things that Arthur Thistlewood probably should have done at this point. The first was to avoid his house and the second was to get the hell out of London. Thistlewood only managed to achieve half of that. He didn't return to his house, but neither did he flee London. Instead, he went to rent a room in the eastern part of the city. By morning, Thursday the 24th of February, newspapers had alerted the city of the previous night's events, and the Home Secretary had offered a reward of 1,000 pounds, an astronomical sum at that time, for information leading to the capture of Arthur Thistlewood. Thistlewood was easily traced to his temporary lodgings and he was arrested just after nine o'clock that morning. He was actually asleep when authorities entered his room. Clearly, he wasn't concerned about being caught. Before they went to trial, the ringleaders were brought before the highest ranking members of the cabinet, the very men they had intended to kill. They were all absolutely unapologetic about what they had planned, and James Ings, the butcher who was Thistlewood's companion, declared that death would be a pleasure to him. This unapologetic attitude continued at their trial in April, where Arthur Thistlewood proudly admitted his guilt and used his time in the spotlight to drive home his points, namely that the government was denying liberty to the British people while plundering their wealth at the same time. Of course, he was technically a traitor and he was sentenced to death, along with James Ings, Richard Tidd, William Davidson and Tom Brunt. Another five members of the gang were sentenced to transportation to Australia. On the morning of the 1st of May 1820, the five condemned men were brought to the scaffold outside Newgate Prison in London, in front of an estimated crowd of 80,000 people. In some ways they were lucky because the sentence of hanging, drawing, and quartering, which had been the standard English punishment for treason and involved having one's insides removed while they were still alive, had been abolished just seven years previously. Instead, the men would die simply by hanging. All five of them faced their fate bravely, with James Ings in particular showing resilience to the end singing an anthem that was popular with radicals at the time. He was shut up by Arthur Thistlewood's last ever words. Quote, do be quietings. We can die without all of this noise. When they were dead, their heads were cut off and displayed before the crowd, who laughed heartily when the hangman dropped Arthur Thistlewood's head. Observers were disgusted by this reaction, and soon afterward, the idea of public executions would be questioned for the first time. Arthur Thistlewood and his gang may have been intent on a horrific act, but to understand their motives, one has to imagine the Britain that they lived in, This was a country teetering on the edge of revolution with uprisings sprouting up across the land and an oppressive government brutally exerting its authority. In their minds, it was the government who were the aggressors against the British people, so it was the government who would have to suffer the consequences of what they saw as the inevitable backlash. However, their mistake aside from being infiltrated by a government agent, of course, was to assume that everyone felt the same as they did, and to set off on a course that had no real aim. French and American revolutionaries had achieved change through uniting different factions of revolutionary thought to produce a mass movement, and had benefited from extraordinary leaders and distinct aims. In contrast, the Cato Street Gang decided to implement their own dangerous plan and just assume that everyone would follow them. And they were led by a man who had no long-term vision. They've been derided as daft and murderous by some and praised as romantic and righteous by others. In my estimation, both of those assessments are probably true. and that was The Cato Street Conspiracy, on which I decided to record a quick little bonus episode because it was the 201st anniversary of it today. Before we go, I just need to reference a few sources that I used to produce this story. It's three articles. The first is The Cato Street Conspiracy, published by the National Archives. The second, Another article called The Cato Street Conspiracy, written by Alan Smith and published by History Today. The final article was called To Kill the Cabinet, The Cato Street Conspiracy, and it was published by the History Extra website.